Good morning. Welcome to a Thursday. The morning after the morning after here on Caitlin Company. Great to have you along with us. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at anydelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. And uh, joining us now, someone who's been uh, very busy over the past couple of uh, days and nights as a result of uh, our midterm elections. Scott Spradling is back with us on Kale & Company. Good morning to you, Scott. Good morning, my good friend. How are you doing? Oh, I, I am doing great, and uh, you've been doing some uh, great coverage for WMUR, both in, in studio and uh, on remote location as well. So uh, <laughs> n- nice job there, keeping, uh, keeping us all informed. So we'll put you on the spot right away and ask you the, the million-dollar question. Uh, yeah. who, who was the biggest winner of the uh, midterm elections? Well, I think the biggest winner out of all of it is probably Chris Sununu, and that's because he just lapped the field with the amount of support he got, not just from fellow Republicans, but clearly from independent voters and several Democrats. So he went two for two in the last couple of elections with a really strong endorsement for the kind of job he's doing. And now he is tying John Lynch as the most elected governor in state history and as a part of a national conversation of whether or not he gets plucked to be a vice presidential running mate or even possibly a presidential candidate. So his stock is probably the highest out of anybody over the election night. Yeah, I don't think there's uh, any doubt, especially uh, on the local scene. And, uh, you know, I think uh, what you just said is a a very good possibility, uh, possibly a, a vice presidential nominee or even at the top of the ticket. And, uh, I, you know, he would not rule that out the other night when uh, doing a little verbal sparring match with David Muir that I saw on uh, ABC TV. He would not, certainly not rule that possibility out. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think back to one week prior to that live interview with David Muir, he told Adam Sexton in the gubernatorial debate on WMUR, that absolutely not. He's not considering anything like that and won't do it. He'll finish his two-year term. So so we have an interesting uh, vibe there. But, I mean, technically, he could finish the two-year term and still be elected either uh, president or uh, be on the, on the ticket because it wouldn't be until January of 25 that the job would start. So technically, he's telling the truth to both people. But we'll see. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And we will be keeping a, uh, an eye on that. And, of course, uh, you know, I, I thought another big winner, obviously, was uh, Ron DeSantis down in Florida. Yeah, he, he ended up with a really strong margin of victory over Chris. I don't think any of us are necessarily surprised that he won, but I think the margin was right. uh, a large one. And, you know, Republicans did well in the state of Florida. That is one of the bright spots uh, for the GOP that was obviously looking to pick up seats in the congressional district to try to take the majority back in Washington, which is all looking like it's falling together. Maybe not with the numbers they were anticipating, but Florida is a big reason why they've closed that gap and will will most likely take the, the gavel away from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And uh, in, in Dade County, uh, which was traditionally yeah. a uh, Democratic stronghold, I mean, both DeSantis and Marco Rubio did uh, very, very well. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, there's your, your one spot in Florida that is the 
eyebrow-raising, interesting surprise with the flip. And, you know, it's hard to analyze the entire country in terms of mood. I mean, you could put some umbrella scent over top of most of these discussions like inflation, abortion, um, you know, the political national mood. But the, the old cliche that all politics is local most certainly holds true. And I think you saw that in places like Dade County and you see it in places like New Hampshire, where the candidates and the quality of their campaigns all matter, as well as what and how they're making their pitch to voters. And then you've got little, uh, you know, turf wars and fightums that happen that, that add up to the overall vote total that shows us sort of where we're at. But I do think that um, the, the Democratic Party as a whole can be labeled a winner from election night as well, not because they're in charge of the House and the Senate in the State House and the House and the Senate in Washington, but because they avoided what was predicted to be some type of a GOP wave. I, I don't think I don't think any of us would have predicted exactly what happened on Tuesday, and all of that benefited them. Yeah, no doubt, and uh, they didn't lose as many seats as uh, many of the pundits thought they would uh, months ago. But I think right. Scott, it, it uh, you know they, they talk about the Trump factor, and and uh, that might might have played a factor. It probably did, but I I think uh, ab- abortion. Uh, was a, a, a bigger factor than many of the polls or most of the polls led us to believe. I think you are spot on correct. And, you know, here's my theory on that. The, the polls didn't capture the strong opposition following the flip of Roe v. Wade, because I think the voters who are most motivated by that action are the ones who aren't going to be answering polls anymore, who aren't going to make a lot of noise about it, who basically, if you will, flipped the switch and said, I don't care what's going on in the campaign trail. I'm voting against the Republicans who are calling for any more changes or who were a part of this switch. So uh, what I think happened is it created a rising tide of Democrats turning out for the midterms that we have never seen before in a midterm election. And it was just already there. So when you've already got a higher tide and now you're trying to figure out within the polls and with with interviewing voters ahead of the election, what's going on? I think almost all the polls missed that higher tide level. That was the baseline of what the Dems turnout was going to look like. They doubled down on it, as we saw in New Hampshire. It was just about every ad from every candidate on the federal office level talking about this issue and just banging the drum. And while a lot of us were probably saying to ourselves, wow, okay, got it, heard it, understand it, there was a reason they were doing that, because they realized it would ignite their base and turn out the kinds of numbers that they needed in order to not just blunt a Republican wave, but at least in New Hampshire, it put New Hampshire Democrats in position to um, potentially tie up the New Hampshire Senate to very possibly tying up the New Hampshire House, and they were even in competitive play for a couple of extra executive council seats that could have been a, a little bit a little bit tired of a race, and we're, we're having a very different conversation about Democratic majorities. The only seat that was truly out of reach for the Democrats was the governor's office, because right. Chris Sinanu yep. was running so strong. Yep. But that's what, that is what the abortion issue ignited in New Hampshire. And, you know, sometimes when all else fails, Ken, sometimes the easiest explanation is the simplest right is the is the right one sometimes we just have to consider the obvious 
And the obvious was this was an historic year that Roe v. Wade, a multi-decade third rail issue in American politics, was overturned. Of course, it triggered a turnout of Democrats nationwide to speak their displeasure. So even in tough economic times, third rail issues exist in American politics. Yeah, I mean, most of the polls entering, uh, you know, Election Day, uh, you know, said that uh, the number one issue was the economy uh, and right. inflation. And and, uh, and as it turned out, I don't think it was, uh, you know, as so, the results would show. Yeah, you know, Ken, that's, a, that's an interesting, it's an interesting proposition because I think, I think this is one of those scenarios on the issues and priorities. I think we're walking and chewing gum at the same time because I think all of us, All of us are worried about the economy. And here in New Hampshire, where our economic situation is just better than many other states around the country, we have low unemployment, we have high health, high education, we're one of the safest states in the country, we have a balanced budget with a surplus, we have money to be able to spend for those who are in need. Our economy in New Hampshire is on reasonably solid ground. But 8 in 10 Americans, according to national polls, are really worried about the future of the economy. So it is absolutely a steady burn of concern for the American public and for Granite Staters. But I think what you also saw was that there are many, many people who are very, very concerned about the overturn of Roe v. Wade and the sort of new law of the land when it comes to restricting abortion rights. And that that has ignited and, and will continue to burn among Democrats who are now going to fight to change policies at the state level to protect these rights. We saw it in Michigan. We've seen it in Vermont. Vermont passed a constitutional amendment, and Michigan is moving in the same direction. Well, uh, you know, the New Hampshire Democrats, other than the man at the top of the ticket, uh, Governor Sununu, the, uh, I should say, the New Hampshire Republicans, uh, you know, meaning uh, General Bolduck, uh, Le- uh, Levitt, uh, Caroline Levitt, and uh, Bob Burns uh, really took it on the chin, and uh, you know it was probably uh, mostly because of that uh, that that issue. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. And you know, it'll be it'll be interesting when the history of this all is written of the 2022 elections in New Hampshire. What will ultimately be said about Don Baldock's campaign? And about Caroline Levitt's campaign, because the one thing that strikes me is the vote total from town to town were nearly identical between the two, but the candidates and their styles were wildly different. Interesting that the results for the both of them ended up being very similar. Scott Spradling is with us, and we're dissecting what happened on Tuesday and uh, and beyond and what kind of an impact it's going to have in the future. Scott, stay with us. We have to take a quick break here on Kale & Company, and then we will be right back on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming around the world, around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We will be right back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com for a Thursday. Political analyst Scott Spradling is with us. He's been doing a great job over the last uh, couple of days for WMUR-TV. 
Uh, back uh, back on the tube, Scott, and uh, it was great to see you. I, I didn't know you were going to be doing that, but then you popped up on the screen, and uh, we're always happy to see you on TV. <laughs> I appreciate you. It's, um, it's always a joy to be able to rejoin some of my former colleagues and co-workers, and it's a little bit like a Where's Waldo exercise. I just sort of pop up, and I, <laughs> it's like... Like Forrest Gump, right? I, I went to the Watt House again, kind of, as, of an approach to covering politics. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, you did a terrific job. And uh, one of the aspects of, of this campaign, especially in the primaries, was the uh, meddling by the Democratic Party. I mean, they, they spent more, what, than $40 million to boost Republicans in uh, some of the key primaries around the country. And one of them was right here in New Hampshire. And apparently, Scott, it, it paid dividends. Yeah, you know, this will be, for the political science junkies of the world, this will be one of those cycles where gambling paid off. And the Dems across the country, and especially here in New Hampshire, wagered a bet that general election voters would not support the Trump-stamped-endorsed candidates who would survive primaries and be on the general election ballot. Because as you and I both know, it's just it's a different audience in a primary versus a general election race. So the Dems, they, they, they plunked their money down and tried to hand-select their candidates. It worked in the second CD with Robert Burns. It worked in the Senate race with Don Bolduc. And I think it arguably worked for Car- with Caroline Levitt for what little they did to affect outcomes in that race as well. So I think it's fascinating to see that Democratic dollars helped choose Republican primary winners who went on to uh, defeat in the general. So the, the only thing I'll say, Ken, is that there's that old adage that still holds true, be careful what you wish for, and that if this becomes a new norm in American or in New Hampshire campaign politics, you're going to see a lot of second-guessing and a lot of, of arguing behind the scenes when uh, one party picks the wrong horse and that horse ends up beating them in the general. So where do we stand right now in in terms of uh, the Republicans taking over the uh, United States House of Representatives? Uh, It it appears that they are are going to, but it's still not quite official. Am I right about that? You are. Yeah, it's not official because we still have a handful of races that have not been finally called or determined yet. So I think what you're going to see is that the Republican Party will assume the helm of the U.S. House of Representatives. But their margin in their majority will be one of the narrowest that we've ever seen, at least in modern political history. One one uh, prediction I saw was that because it takes 218 to have the majority in Washington in the House. And what I saw was I saw one prediction that was 219 to 216 for them. So it's going to be very, very close. The margin, you know, adds plus or minus five to either of those numbers. And I think that's kind of where we're at with the U.S. House and the Senate may not flip. That one is still up in the air as well, Ken, but it's looking like it may come down to another 50 to 49, and we wait to see whether the Senate incumbent in Georgia, who's a Dem right now, can beat challenger former football player Herschel Walker to keep that seat. That race may determine the majority in the Senate again. 
Yeah, and that uh, and that election won't be held until early December, so we'll be uh, right. you know uh, hanging by our thumbs until then to see what happens in Georgia. But it'll be interesting to see because in in, in Georgia the the uh, the law is that uh, one candidate has to have at least fifty percent of the vote, and neither one did. And uh, now you get the other candidate out of there, the Libertarian candidate, and we'll have mm-hmm. to see uh, in which direction uh, most of those votes go to. Determine determine uh, who wins that race between uh, Warnock and, and Herschel Walker. That's exactly right. And then meantime, in New Hampshire, it's sort of a status quo election with one exception, just like in Washington. So in Washington, the Senate race looks like it may be the same as the dust settles. In the New Hampshire Senate, different faces, same result, 14 to 10 Republican majority. Executive Council, same result, 4 to 1 Republican majority. The only changes in the House we're just like we're talking about in the U.S. House, the New Hampshire House may be as close to a tie 200 to 200 that we've ever seen. So, the, again, it's the same situation. Not all the races have been finalized. There will be recounts because there always are with that many races in New Hampshire. So it'll take us a little while to shuffle it out. But I'm assuming that sometime by the end of this month or early December, we will know exactly what the number is. But Republicans lost ground in the House which basically on all practical purposes can in New Hampshire means that Republicans do not have a strong majority to push through their issues because there are always in the New Hampshire House a handful of Republicans who are more moderate, who are more bipartisan, and who will comfortably vote with Dems on a number of different issues. So I'll cite one right now, right to work. Right to work, I thought, was a foregone conclusion to pass in New Hampshire next year because of what we all assumed was a red wave. That red wave never happened. So now it looks like right to work is not a foregone conclusion for next year. It would likely pass the House given the current makeup by one vote. But in the I'm sorry, it would pass the Senate by one vote. But in the House, I'm not sure the votes are there anymore to pass right to work. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. But New Hampshire loves to split their ballots. There's no doubt about that. I mean, is there oh my God. any other state where, you know, you have a Republican governor, which you have now for four consecutive terms, and uh, and also a, a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate, and yet the entire congressional district is Democrat. Uh, the yeah. con- congressional delegation, Amazing. I should say, is all Democrat. And, exactly. Uh, it, it, I, I'm sure that doesn't happen in many states. Oh, uh, totally. And that's just, that's, that's New Hampshire for you. It's purple. And this is, you know, welcome to the Granite State. And I think this was something that Adam Sexton was talking about on election night when we were seeing the numbers start to finally come in, is that when you tally it all up from a Democratic Party perspective, New Hampshire now has a very strong message to deliver to the Democratic National Committee about keeping New Hampshire first in the presidential primary lane. Because New Hampshire Democrats turned out to blunt, if not eliminate, a red wave, and they erected a blue wall. They are connected. They're paying attention. And what's equally important is that New Hampshire independent voters will lean in to issues that are important to New Hampshire Democrats, like abortion. We are a very socially independent thinking type of a state when it comes right down to it. Granite Staters lean pretty hard pro-choice. They, and, and I think it's not because we are advocates for uh, the abortion issue. It's because I think Granite Staters have a libertarian mindset. I think in New Hampshire, what voters want to know is, how are you going to spend limited tax dollars? Don't keep trying to take it out of my wallet. 
and then stay out of my private life, period. Keep out of my bedroom, stay out of my medical decisions, leave me the heck alone. I think that the New Hampshire voter on both sides of the aisle is what they want as, a, as an extreme majority. That plays well to both parties in the presidential primary. And I think we become an amazing bellwether for what the general election national mood looks like. I mean, look at how our results mirror what happened in Washington. We are an amazing bellwether. We're a great test case. So you're as, a, as the Democratic National Committee, you're idiots if you take away our first-in-line status because you're able to adjust your messaging to align with the national mood by running through New Hampshire, a small, affordable, accessible state. We are the perfect test case. So coming out of this election cycle, the Dems now have perhaps the strongest argument they've ever had Mm, to tell the DNC, knock it off. Excellent point. So speaking of that uh, aforementioned uh, primary, which is less than two years away, and and, and (laughs) in effect, it's it's probably already started. Who's the Republican frontrunner right now, Scott Spradling? We, I mean, I guess it's Donald Trump. If he's going to be making the announcement next week, you sort of always start these conversations with the guy who had the nomination the last time around. So uh, this was the incumbent president. So you start the conversation with Donald Trump because we've seen the impact he has on the primary outcome. His people are the most ardent supporters and the ones most likely to turn out. But this cycle is incredibly different than when he ran for the first time. And I think now that there's a resume, now that there are extraneous issues surrounding Donald Trump, like legal issues, and then you're seeing the outcome of the midterms this time around, which was a rebuke of Trump candidates, the stock value of the Trump brand is not as high as it has been. So that empowers people like Ron DeSantis and others, uh, Mike Pompeo, to say he's beatable. I'm staying in the thing. Same with Pence. Scott Spradling, always a delight to have you on. Great insight, and uh, we look forward to uh, having you join us again in the not-too-distant future here on Kale & Company. Ken, thank you so much for your time. You have a wonderful holiday weekend. Uh, My thoughts and prayers and my very best to all those connected to veterans for Veterans Day tomorrow. And thank you so much for all that you do for the public, Ken. Scott, thank you so much as well, and we will chat soon. Thank you. All right. Scott Spradling, political analyst. Always great to have Scott uh, on the program, no matter what topic uh, we discuss here on Kale and Company. And we'll be right back and uh, talk to uh, an author, Peter Quinn, about uh, his new book called Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. Right here, Kale and Company Live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company for a Thursday. A delight to have you along with us on 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Joining us on Kale and Company is a novelist, political historian, and foremost chronicler of New York City, uh, Peter Quinn. Peter, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Where, where are you joining us from this morning? 
Hastings uh, on Hudson, about 20 minutes outside New York City. Very nice. And your latest book, Cross Bronx, A Writing Life, uh, very enjoyable, a real page turner. (laughs) And uh, what an incredible uh, life and and career uh, that you have had. And it's a a delight to have you with us. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, let's let's talk about your your early life growing up in the Bronx, an Irish upbringing in in the Bronx and uh, how it shaped the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. I grew up in the East Bronx and it was uh, really was divided into three parts, like Gaul, um, Irish, Italian and Jewish. And uh, we went to school with Italians because they were Catholic and we lived with Jews. So we had a wide exposure to different cultures. And that was the part of the Bronx that was in. When I was growing up in the 50s, the South Bronx was becoming a Puerto Rican and African-American. So it was quite a mix of people. There were more people in the Bronx than there are in New Hampshire. So uh, yeah. quite a... That, that is uh, very true. Uh, no doubt about quite that. Quite a place. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I had my whole education. And uh, I went to parochial grammar school, high school. I went to Manhattan College and then Fordham. So I was never in a classroom outside the Bronx. Wow, that, that that is really something. And uh, your career in politics, though, started uh, uh, pretty early with uh, your dad being a judge. He was a congressman in the Second World War, yeah. and um, after he had been an assemblyman and then a judge. And I grew up thinking, I never want to go into politics. I don't want to be part of it. It's so uh, time-consuming and difficult. And then I wound up being a speechwriter for Governor Hugh Carey. And then I was passed along to Governor Mario Cuomo as his speechwriter for three and a half years. And then I went to uh, then I went to Time Warner, where I was for the next twenty three years as chief speechwriter. So, what what was your first job? Your first job oh, in life? Out of college, <laughs> I was a media buyer at a, a, a advertising firm on on Madison Avenue. <clears throat> And then I, I, I was not any good at that, so I, I joined Vista, the Domestic Peace Corps, and I did that. And then I came back to the Bronx. I was a court officer in the Bronx Landlord and Tenant Corps, and then I was the archivist of the—they call it the New York Botanical Gardens, but those of us who grew up in the Bronx call it the Bronx Botanical Gardens. And then I went back to Fordham to get a doctorate in Irish history, and I, I wound up—I was writing articles for a magazine, America, and somebody gave one to— Governor Hugh Carey, and he was looking for a speechwriter, so they offered me the job. I had never written a speech before, and I wrote the Fordham Law School commencement speech, and they liked it. Then I wrote the another college speech, and they liked that, and they offered me a job. So I said, I'll do it for a year, and then I'll go back and get my doctorate. So I did it for the next 30 years. I never went back and got the doctorate. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, you wrote speeches for two New York governors, uh, right. governors uh, Hugh Carey and uh, and then uh, Mario Cuomo, right. and uh, a number of high-powered CEOs as right. well. But uh, not not something you necessarily set out to do. No, I, it never crossed my mind that I was going to be a, a college professor is what I wanted to be. Uh, you know, I don't know anybody, I didn't really work with anybody who set out to be a speechwriter. It was always an accident. <clears throat> um there were no college courses, or they weren't in my day in speech writing. You learned by the seat of your pants. You went in and uh, you closed the door to a room, and you thought of what you could put in somebody else's mouth, and that was it. That was the training. It was it was really good training to be a writer because uh, there was no romance involved. You, you went into a room, and you came out with a speech, and if you didn't, you lost your job. It was pretty brutal, but uh, a great education. 
And it wasn't your intent necessarily to stay in that role as a speechwriter for, uh, you know, more than a year or so, but you, uh, you spent considerably longer than that. Yeah, well, I have uh, children and a mortgage and a college <laughs> tuition. <laughs> Those are the great inspirations for, for uh, anybody, I guess, paying the bills. Yep. And then, I, you know, I was writing speeches, and I realized speechwriters are heard but not seen. You're in the background all the time. And I wanted to put my name on something. I also wanted to try to write novels. So I started to get up at 5.30 and work on my novels. And I did that. Um, I wrote four novels doing that, getting up early and writing. Um, you know, there's a romance to writing. People think, oh, that's a great thing. It's the most unromantic job you can imagine. You go into a room by yourself uh, all alone and you deal with these characters that don't really exist. And you try to come up with something that people will publish and read. So, you know, you were in the, the real world writing speeches and then, right. uh, you know, the, the world of, of writing novels uh, right. all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was great. It was, a, uh, it was a therapy because when you're speech writer, you have to give the speech. Other people work on it. They tell you, I don't like this. I don't like that. Fix this. Fix that. But I had this manuscripts that had my drawer. I said, they can do whatever they want to the speech, but this is mine. And I work on this, and they don't even know I'm working on it. So uh, I knew I had something of my own. And I would say, well, the speech belongs to them. That's what they're paying me for. But this belongs to me. So I wrote, my first novel was Banished Children of Eve. That was, <laughs> it took me 10 years. It came out at 600 pages. So uh, it was a long labor. And then I did a trilogy of detective novels. Um, and then I wrote a book of essays, and then I wrote this memoir of uh, growing up in the Bronx and speech writing and what I saw uh, with two governors and corporate speech writing. I worked for five chairmen at Time Warner, which started off as Time Inc. It became Time Warner and then the great catastrophe of AOL Time Warner. The great catastrophe of AOL <laughs> Time Warner, huh? <laughs> There's no more Time Warner. I mean, it was the largest media company in the United States. It doesn't exist anymore. It's almost... Hard to believe. Yeah, no doubt. So, and you were there in its infancy, right? Uh, yeah, I was yeah. there when it was created. Uh, Time Inc., where I started, was a great, great company, largest magazine company in the world. Right. And, uh, and it was run wonderfully, and the employees were treated really great. And then we had a merger with Warner, which made it bigger. And then the AOL merger it became incomprehensible as a corporation. It included everything from the Atlanta Braves, to Time Magazine, to Progressive Pharma. Uh, it just was a sprawling company. And, and it seemed like it would be around forever, you know? It seemed like an American sure. institution. Yeah. And, and, now, and, and now it's gone, and Time Inc. is gone. All the magazines were sold off. And Warner Brothers now belongs, I think, to AT&T. And I don't know where HBO is. All these great properties in one company have been scattered. Yeah. Are there still magazines? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call them now? I don't know the name for ones online. Does print still exist? I don't yeah. Think. yeah. Uh, Peter Quinn is with us, uh, author of the new book, uh, Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. And uh, talk a little bit about uh, one of the landmark speeches you were involved in, uh, involved writing, uh, Mario Cuomo's uh, speech at the 1984 a Democratic National Convention, a convention which certainly put him uh, into the uh, national spotlight. Yeah, you know, he uh, reluctantly accepted the... Uh, Mondale was running against Reagan, so he wasn't sure whether he wanted to give the speech, but 
There's a lot of pressure on him to give it. And uh, when we were working on it, we watched keynotes back to, like, 1956 to see what they were like. And that was pretty frightening because a lot of them just bombed. So then um, I wrote the first draft, and he worked on it, and then he sent it back to me, and we worked for about a week. The myth was that he wrote it in five hours in the mansion, but speeches aren't written like that. Nobody writes a speech in five hours. So, uh, and then we weren't sure what we had, so we took the speech and we gathered people from the mailroom and people like that. We went into the press room, turned out the lights, and he gave the speech, and they said it stinks. Uh, so we went, Tim Russett was the press secretary. We went back to the governor's office, and there was a section in the middle in which uh, Cuomo addressed Ronald Reagan, so we put that in the front. Now we came back and got another group of people. And they liked it more, but they said the ending isn't any good. So Andrew Cuomo, the governor's son, pulled me aside and said, you've got to fix the ending. And I went to Cuomo's diaries, and I found this story about his father bleeding from the bottom of his feet. He worked so hard. He was an Italian immigrant, Grosser. And I put that at the end, and it worked. And, you know, the thing about speech writing is a lot of it depends on who's giving the speech. Sure. You can write a really good speech and give it to somebody who just steps all over it. But Cuomo had this presence. Uh, he, he could have been an actor or a comedian. He had real physical presence. And he got up in San Francisco and made that speech his own and then was uh, hailed all across the country. He was the great Democratic, great white hope for the future. Uh, and that didn't work out. Peter, can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? Sure. Yeah. To. Have to take a quick break here. Peter Quinn is with us, and his new book is entitled Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. It is uh, fascinating, especially if you uh, enjoy politics or enjoy uh, a little history of New York. And uh, this is the book for you. Peter Quinn on WKXL, Kale & Company Live. And we'll be right back after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale & Company Live here for this Thursday morning. Great to have you along with us. And uh, joining us on the show is a novelist, political historian, and uh, foremost chronicler of New York City, Peter Quinn, author of the book Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. And uh, Peter, great to have you with us today. And we're talking about your speech writing for uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, and the National Convention speech in, uh, in 84 was just amazing, put him on the map. But there was another uh, very uh, historic speech that you, uh, you helped to write. Uh, and it was on religion and politics at uh, right. Notre Dame University. Yeah, 1984. It was uh, two months after the uh, convention speech, um, and the burning issue in the 84 election seemed to be abortion. And Cuomo was under a lot of pressure, and uh, he had gotten an invitation from Father Richard McBrien at the theology department in Notre Dame come out and address it, and we thought it was just going to be a small speech. But the issue just kept blowing up, and then it was nationally televised. Um, and, you know, he was very honest. Uh, Cuomo was a sincere Catholic, and he really tackled this problem and wrestled with it. And myself and uh, another speechwriter, uh, Bill Hanlon, who had studied to be a Jesuit for 11 years, we wrote it. We wrote the, the draft uh, and tried to figure it out, how you could be a Catholic and at the same time be pro-choice. It, you know, we it was trying to create a middle ground, and it didn't. This is now, what, 16? It's almost 40 years ago. And 
at that time, there was no talk about overturning Roe v. Wade. It was a constitutional amendment they thought was going to do it. And, I mean, it didn't solve anything. The issue went on and on and on, and, you know, it's still a bit of divide. It yeah. kind of yeah. hasn't gone away. The country's still divided over it. So it was, it was a real lesson in political speech writing if you try to reach one point and reach a consensus, and it's, it's very, very difficult. One speech can't do that. And tell but us, he tr- yeah, he, uh, he tried. You know, he was he was. I thought he was very brave to do. When we told him, we said, you know, you're going to be televised. You can't speak for more than fifteen minutes. That's the public attention span, and then there has to be an advertisement. And he said, I don't care if it takes an hour. So I said, well, you know, that's pretty brave for a politician to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, Bill Hanlon. You uh, yeah. collaborated with him for, right. for 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 many years. How were your styles different? Uh, he was much more. Um, he was a great editor. He had a, a like a steel trap uh, mind, and he could pick something out right away from that was illogical or didn't fit, and turn it around. And I was the more logical person. I could just write, write put things down, and he could shape it into something that was more forceful. I was very lucky to have him. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I went off on my own, um, and I really benefited from having, I would say, a Jesuit education at his end. How, how has speechwriting uh, for politicians uh, changed over the years? You know, it's changed so much uh, now because of the Internet, and I watch Biden... It seems politicians read everything. They all have teleprompt. Uh, I feel sorry for speechwriters because now they have to constantly write things and put them on teleprompters. I was like from the 19th century. We wrote texts, <laughs> yeah. uh, gave them to the governor, and he might work on it, he might not, and then he would give it. Uh, and it was much slower. I don't, you know, I'm up in age now, and uh, I just can't imagine the pressure they're under to produce this constant stream of drama and words. And, and I know you're not a, a big fan of uh, State of the Union addresses by, uh, by presidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or State of the States. They're yeah, terrible. Right. There's never been a good State of the State, I don't think, by the very nature of their laundry list of programs. And the State of the Union is a pretty miserable experience, too. The State of the Union wasn't given until Woodrow Wilson. It was delivered as a message. And because he was a professor, he decided he was going to give it to Congress like a lecture. And then it stuck. I think they should go back to a written message and send that to... You know, there's the whole the peanut gallery. They get some people up in the gallery and the president points them out. And then when it's a Democratic president, the whole Democratic side of the House stands when he talks and the Republicans sit. And if it's a Republican president, they stand and the Democrats sit. Yeah. It's just, it's like a ceremony. It's, I think it's pretty useless as a speech. Yeah, tell, tell us about uh, Both Sides Now, and I don't mean the song by Judy Collins. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're Both Sides Now. Do you want me to sing? I can't yeah. sing. <laughs> I'm Irish, but I can't sing. <laughs> well, well tell, tell us about it, how it came about. Both Sides Now? Yeah. Um, uh. Oh, you mean a speech? But I'm not. I'm unsure what you're pointing at. Well, you were uh, 
uh, both sides now. It's, it's it's in your book here. It's uh, an event that uh, you were with with uh, President Clinton and uh, oh yeah, Ro- yeah, Ro- that was the uh, that was the the Irish the um, Belf- the uh, Good Friday Accord. Yeah, and I had worked for Kerry on the Irish issues. I had been his point person on that, and gone to Ireland and traveled with um, John Hume and come back. And Kerry had proposed there were these four husbands, Moynihan, Ted Kennedy. Um, Kerry, and they were trying to get the British government to reach a um, an agreement. They said, you know, the only way you're going to solve the Northern Irish problem, it's not going to be solved in Northern Ireland. It has to be an international group. And that's what happened with the Good Friday Accord. And, you know, it was, I wrote this um, script that was given to Frank McCourt and Gregory Peck read it at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And then George Mitchell, who negotiated the uh, Good Friday Accord was being given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So Clinton brought this uh, show to the White House, and we gave it the night that um, that um, Mitchell was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Very so, good. And, you know, it was interesting because it was a totally different kind of script from a speech. Uh, it had to be interspersed with music. It was like a kind of show, and I had never done that before. And, and I actually enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't do it again. Um, so, you know, that was a unique experience, being at the White House on the lawn and writing that speech. Right. I imagine it uh, it would have been. Uh, tell us about, uh, before we have to wrap things up, tell us about right. your, your final uh, meeting with uh, Mario Cuomo. Yeah, you know, Cuomo, um, he's claimed to have written all the speeches himself, uh, which is part of the speech writers. That's the, you know, pact with the devil. You don't get the credit. They do. But then he published a book called More Than Words, in which he published the speeches, which I thought was very unfair as his own. So I didn't really talk to him for 20 years. And then I was uh, wrote this trilogy of novels, of detective novels, and the Irish Consul General in New York was giving a party for me, and Cuomo showed up. And it was his first public acknowledgement. He said, you know, I owe Peter a lot. He wrote these speeches. And I thought that was very generous. You know, as I said, he was a complex man, and... Uh, all those years later, he said he admitted it, and all my bitterness went away about it. And then he had me to lunch his apartment, and we kind of repaired the relationship. And I never lost my respect for him. You know, I thought, nobody's perfect, and he wanted to claim these speeches. In the end, his great legacy was speech-giving. He wasn't, didn't get a lot accomplished as governor, uh, but he did kind of rally the party and uh, give some very memorable speeches that I think will last. Who do you read? I read William Kennedy. Uh, I love William Kennedy's uh, Ironweed and Legs. And my hero is uh, Raymond Chandler. Uh, I, the, uh, uh, I think was the great... He's Philip Marlowe. He's supposedly a detective novelist, but he was a great American writer. Uh, and I love... I've read his novels about three times, because I wrote this detective trilogy, and uh, Philip Marlowe was my ideal... And nobody wrote better dialogue than Philip, uh, than Raymond Chandler. He just was like such an expert at it. And you can learn. One thing I tell people who want to take writing courses, forget about it. Just read. All good writing has already been done. You just have to learn to look at it. And Bill Kennedy told me, he said, I, I pick out a paragraph and I copy it out. And I say, why does this paragraph work and the others don't, the other writers? And, you know, you do your own analysis 
telling, taking writing courses, learning how somebody else writes. You want to you have to. All good writers are self-taught, and they're taught. You can't be a writer and not read a lot. That's my basic principle. I was offered to teach writing courses. I said, "There's nothing really to teach." You know, there's, I don't have one trick. I've been a writer for thirty years. I don't have one shortcut. I don't have one uh, little device that you use. You, you just got to write the paragraph and see. Does this work or it doesn't work? And it's hard because you have to judge yourself, which is very hard to do. And then in the end, it's between you and an editor. You know, people give, I have friends who give manuscripts to people. I say, you shouldn't do that because in the end, it doesn't matter what they think. It's what the editor thinks and what you think. And you have to be happy with what you wrote. And you have to have faith in it and confidence because that can be destroyed pretty easily. Kennedy wrote Ironweed was turned down by 13 publishers. And it won the Pulitzer Prize and yeah. National Book Award when wow. he finally published. So yeah. you, you just, you know, listen to yourself um, and listen to an editor. And that's, that's pretty much the game. And you have a great chat with Mr. Kennedy uh, near the end of, of your yeah. book, which is yeah. uh, certainly must-reading. Yeah. And, and as you are, Peter Quinn, you are must-reading, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately we have to wrap things up. But okay. uh, your latest book is uh, Cross Bronx, A Writing right. Life, and available where all books are sold on Amazon, right? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And if so you want to come to the you want to come to the Bronx, I'll show you around. Oh, uh, I would love that. I would <laughs> okay. I may take you up on that. Okay. Thanks take so the much. Stadium. Yeah. Yep. Take care. Oh, I've been there. Thanks, Peter. Okay. Take Thanks care. a lot. Bye-bye. Peter Quinn, and uh, thank him for uh, coming on today. Kale and Company presented by Northeast Delta Dental. They have individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at anydelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. Back tomorrow on WKXL with the Friday Fun Bunch. Have a great Thursday, everybody.